build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. It's Friday and I've Definitely been looking forward to the weekend the entire week. It's been busy, and I'm sure you're probably a little like me. And there are times when I spend all my time writing and covering and talking about people that do incredible things, often for a living, as professionals, climbers, skiers, mountain bikers, runners, and adventurers. I have to ask myself, what would it be like to be a pro? to be the person on the wall calendar above your desk or the woman on the cover of Powder Magazine? What would that be like? What would it be like to, to be able to do the thing I love every single day? And then the next thought that often pops into my mind is, how the hell do you get that job? From our perspectives, we think about being a pro, that must be incredible. There's free gear, getting to travel around the world, doing photo shoots, working with incredible brands, and we call that living the dream. And it's true, it's pretty close to living a dream and it's great work if you can get it. But the truth is, as people, we tend to oversimplify other people's existences. And so that leads to a question, what is it actually like to be a pro athlete, to be a part of the game, the business? Are our heroes and legends just everyday people evolving into and out of careers? Is there a cost to living the dream? So I went to a friend, the indomitable Timmy O'Neill. Once you're a public figure, you're not only open for public praise, but you're open for public scorn. You're open for public criticism. You're open, open to this public inspection of your ethos, of your climbing style, of what you had for dinner, of who you're having sex with, uh, of who you're not having sex with. You basically go from being this small-time player in, in what's a really obscure sport, climbing, into being a focus. And some people do really well and thrive, and others, it's like a magnifying glass, and they get burned like that sorry ant. Did you get burned like the ant, or did you thrive at it? Dude, I'm one of seven kids. It was always about over here, I'm hungry, right? So being, you know, being the fifth of seven was always about pay attention to me, you know, I'm hungry too. I need shoes too. I need clothes too. So it fit really well in. It dovetailed in perfectly with look over here. I need shoes. I need a rope. I need a harness. It's only a couple people that actually get to make a living at this game. Really the way you're going to make a living as a, as a professional climber is by writing about it, by speaking about it, by photographing it, by filming it, and being on both sides of those. A lot of people don't have the chops for that. And it becomes burdensome, tiresome. You get burned out. You say, screw this. I'm going to pick up my hammer and be a carpenter again. Or I'm going to go back to school and finish my degree. I mean, there's only a few people that I can think of that still actually make a living as a professional climber that are, that are older than 50.
Making it as a sponsored athlete in the outdoor industry, is it what we imagine? Does it lose its luster when it becomes your job? Today we present Making It, two stories about evolving into and out of being a professional athlete. Timmy O'Neill gives a story about embracing climbing to become more than just a climber. But first, story of a young semi-pro skier who missed out on the spotlight, grew up, and never stopped chasing the dream. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. To say that Zach Giffen loves skiing is an understatement. He's cobbled his life together with one overriding goal in mind, to ski powder every day that he possibly can and to ski incredible lines. I always was just like toyed around with the idea that maybe I would like be a pro skier. Zach grew up in Colorado. As a kid, his dad wasn't interested in hauling his sons around for the ski race competitions. So by default, Zach and his brothers became free skiers. They just ripped around the hill. At 19, he started competing in slope style, half pipe, and big air comps, and doing pretty well in them. And so even before I started competing, in the, in the back of my mind, the park was just kind of the secondary element to the whole sport. Um, and I was doing it because it was kind of fresh and it was super fun, and I was pretty good at it. But I never, in, you know, I never thought, like, this is where it's at. You know, this is what I want to do. To a young skier, becoming a pro seems like a perfect idea. But in reality, it can be cutthroat. Talent is snatched up at an early age. For young skiers, there's an economic incentive to go bigger, to take bigger chances, to accept more risks. And sure, they are competitors, and competitors compete. They thrive on one-upmanship, and maybe that's why ski careers are often short-lived. Even at his young age, Zach had the sense that there was more than just this idea of perfection to being a pro. And I kind of was hoping to get sponsored, but I definitely never thought that I would actually, you know, turn it into getting paid to do it. Even though I knew that maybe there was a chance, um, it was just like a protection for myself not to allow myself to feel that disappointment, you know, making that the goal and then getting discouraged on that level could like ruin this thing that I loved. I think that I was also like kind of headstrong on the fact that I wasn't going to allow the sponsorship realm to control whether or not I was going to be able to be a powder skier. And that's one thing that definitely went through my mind when I was doing the train park stuff was kind of where is this leading? What's like the best case scenario? And the best case scenario for me is, okay, you get known, you get the sponsor, you know, you get to do these contests, but the real payoff is that you get to go maybe to the big mountains and start working on skiing powder. I didn't necessarily want to put it up to chance, up to some judges at contests to decide whether or not I was going to be able to participate in that realm. And I think that's when my decision to move to Mount Baker happened. Baker combines tree lines, 
steep convex rollers, uncrowded slopes, and backcountry access to alpine ridges with the highest average annual snowfall for any place in the world. It's incredible. Seeing the sun is rare. You don't move there because you want to go party. You move there because you want to ski. It's as laid back as a resort can get. In 2002, Zach and his younger brother, Sam, moved to the area. At the time, before backcountry and sidecountry skiing were terms that were in the ski industry's vernacular, Baker was still a relative secret, nestled in the Cascades. It was known more for its snowboarding, and there were some pros there, but the ski media had really yet to discover the place. There was a couple big pieces that played into how I kind of took the experience at Mount Baker and used it to become a professional skier. Big one is that when I made that move, it really was kind of me kind of as a park skier, kind of really enjoying that realm, but also feeling like there's more and there's something that's heavier and there's something that's more real. Zach worked in the terrain park, then on ski patrol. Then he got asked to leave ski patrol because it was clear Zach was there to ski. He couch surfed, he lived in an old RV, then upgraded to a van equipped with a wood stove, but with dodgy brakes. He became a mechanic out of necessity. He scraped together as much money working in the summer so that the winters were free for skiing. He turned heads, a skier amongst snowboarders, tossing backflips, stomping airs. Sam, his brother, liked to be behind the camera and produce little movies. Zach defined the ski bum. It was a lifestyle, not a career. No one noticed, then fine. Zach was doing exactly what he wanted to. More than anything else, I would credit for me kind of moving in the direction of trying to get paid for skiing. But Powder Magazine was doing a big kind of tour with their cop car, and it was a story article. And um, um, they came to Mount Baker, and they needed somebody to sh jump the road gap. And it was a big storm cycle, and everybody's powder skiing, and nobody wanted to do it. It's just like, you know, howling winds, and nobody wanted to jump the road. And so I got a call. I was on the island, and I got a call from Grant Gunderson. He's like, oh, the powder is here, and they need you to jump the road. And so I jumped in the car, and I headed up. I went up, and, of course, nobody would come and, you know, help me out. So I ended up building the whole thing myself and stamped it out. And, you know, then in the very, very end, my my friend Zach Barrett, after I had it all built, he shows up, and he's like, oh, are we going to do this? So me and Zach Barrett, we jumped the road. You know, it's not the biggest jump, and it's big powder, and it just wasn't even a thought to me. These guys were just kind of really impressed with the whole scene, you know, and somebody going up there and building it by themselves. And then in the very end of the day, my older brother drove my van to the upper parking lot, and uh, he kind of, like, stopped, but he couldn't, He, he you know, we didn't have good tires, so he couldn't stop totally. He just slowed down, and yelled something and drove off and the guys were like, what was that? Who was that? And I told him it was my older brother taking my van to the upper parking lot so I could go to sleep there because that's where I was living at the time. And I think it was just the whole combination of this, these events of just kind of like meeting me and being a high level skier and then kind of realized I was like, you know, the only person that actually was living in the parking lot it was just kind of a story that they couldn't, um, that they just thought was cool. 
You know, I definitely think when I got on the cover of Powder Magazine, that was a big one. You know, in terms of just one, in terms of just one moment where it was kind of like, wow, you know, this is something that's really was, again, another milestone I never thought would ever happen, you know? The sponsorship pieces fell into place, and after years of working towards it, Zach became a pro skier. He traveled further afield from Baker, northward to British Columbia and to the southern reaches of the Americas. And this last spring, he achieved his lifelong goal of skiing in Alaska. The experience of going to Alaska after that many years of dreaming about it, and then also having it be really just every bit as good as I thought it might be. (laughs) It really is really big and it's really, really steep. Not that I felt undergunned, but it definitely was like, yeah, I, I have a lot of learning and just a lot more, um, a much bigger canvas in which to explore what's possible. Zach, you're, you're 30 now. And do you ever wish that the sponsorship, that, that becoming a pro had happened back in the day, like when you were, when you were 20 years old and, and competing? One of the greatest mistakes that I've ever done is decide that I was too, too old to start pursuing something that I thought might be fun. And I have this distinct memory of being 13, and I had these friends that were skateboarders, and I really, you know, I was hanging out with them, and I really wanted to be a skateboarder, but I was a soccer player. I was a damn good soccer player and I was a damn good skier. And these kids, they had been skateboarding for like two years and they were really good. And I was just kind of thinking, man, I'm 13, I'm old. I'll never be as good as they are. And, oh, I better just stick to soccer. And then, of course, yeah, I start really trying to learn to skateboard at like 19, 20. And thinking back on it, you know, if I had just really started trying to learn to skateboard at 13, I would be a phenomenal skateboarder by now. You know, and it's those kind of decisions that you got to watch out for because even at 13, you can allow yourself to decide that you're too old to become an expert at something and therefore don't want to do it. There was a moment when I was back in Boulder, Colorado, and I ran into a friend of mine from years and years ago that I hadn't seen who had been. Um, in competitions with me in Mount, in Breckenridge. And uh, at the time, he was actually really, really good. And he started, I mean, really quickly going on this professional track. And uh, then he kind of like got into the magazines and I saw a couple ads. And then he went to this big contest, I think it was X Games or something. And he really just didn't do well. Like he had a really bad day and just didn't do well. And I think that happened right about the same time that I left Mount Baker. And I don't think we had seen each other since he was really just like this guy that was on the top of the competition circuit. And and then I ran into him and it was kind of like we went through the conversation because I had heard that the ski season in Colorado had been the best ski season ever. So the first question was, you know, how was it last season? Kind of expecting that he was going to, give me this story about how incredible the ski season was and all of this and that. And instead he just said, man, I just didn't even get out last season. I just don't know. I haven't even skied for a couple of seasons. 
and literally he was asking me what I was doing and I like I'm just kind of thinking about it and I'm like you know half on my way back from uh, from South America about to like take a couple weeks and then go and start skiing again and do my whole winter routine and you know travel the world and kind of get paid to do this dream that both of us were kind of in the pursuit of a long long time ago um I literally couldn't even tell him what it was I was doing I was just like I was like nothing you know and it's it was just kind of kind of heartbreaking to me not necessarily heartbreaking but it was just amazing for me to see that and just kind of imagine my own direction and how kind of long it took for everything to come together and to kind of put myself back in the shoes where we both were competing and to try to convince myself that this is the path that it would have taken would be completely unbelievable. I just really feel like the amount of the amount of success that I've gotten because it took so long and it was so many dreams that I didn't expect to happen happened. Um, and I would encourage anybody that kind of manages to, you know, taste a certain amount of success to probably delay it as long as possible. There's nothing like that feeling that I've experienced in my life of uh, just kind of having dreams that I thought were over for so many years kind of resurface and come back to life and then come true. Do you, do you worry that it's going to, that it's going to end now? I mean, because you're, you're getting older. I mean, is that something that you've dealt with mentally is that, that this may be really short lived? You know, I, I never once in my life allowed myself to believe that I was going to be able to pay for anything with skiing. Um, and I think what's happened is it's allowed me to kind of gain a huge amount of other skill sets in life and a lot of other experience. The amount of effort that I've put into being a professional skier and, and pursuing this dream, it's really like if I could have channeled that energy and focus into any other aspect in life, I could have become anything that I wanted to. So I'm really not, I'm not frightened of the moment when being an athlete isn't a moneymaker anymore. That was Zach Giffen. Next up, Timmy O'Neill, a story about evolving beyond climbing. Rope can take you places, but at a certain point, to be truly successful, you might just have to untie and move beyond the sport. To live an exceptional life does not mean that you're immune to fear and, and immune to feeling as if you're amounting to nothing. It, it actually means that you're most likely considering those things even more. Because it's not about playing it safe. 
Timmy O'Neill has been climbing for more than 20 years. And for the majority of that time, he's been a sponsored climber. He started movies, he's owned the speed record on the nose, he's traveled the world as an MC for climbing festivals. He's been the lovable wild man. And while he's never been the strongest climbers, he's always been one of the most enthusiastic, if not the most enthusiastic. Okay, so how does it, how does it start? Typically, what you get is a box of shoes, a box of bars, and a box of gear. And you are in hog heaven. And because you have the most minimal amount of, of possessions, all of a sudden when you're on the cusp of becoming a professional climber, they're giving you things. And they, meaning the marketing individuals responsible for pumping up these brands, right? So you also have these mentors, your friends that have made it. And by made it, meaning... Not only are they getting things, harnesses, shoes, gear, but they're getting a stipend, a small amount of money. And they're getting that money to go on a trip. They're getting that money to be able to pay for their bean burritos for the next month as they work on their project. And they're getting these money, these, these checks and this money in, in return for gaining exposure ship for the brand. I mean, I, I never set my sights on becoming a professional climber. It, was eventually when I left Philadelphia when I was 19 years old that I actually started to learn. I mean, the, my entire time in conventional school, I felt was lacking. I, I felt so under enthusiastic towards it. And then it became this process of year after year living in the dirt and learning these very valuable lessons about stewardship of one's life again. As I became a better climber and more enthusiastic about climbing, I, I all of a sudden found myself becoming a professional climber. The speed climbs, the audacious first ascents and far-flung mountains, they put me in a spotlight that made me singular. And as a result, it was a very short bridge to walk across into the pantheon of, of professional climbing and those individuals who are seen as something special when, in fact, they're generally just singularly obsessed people who have achieved this craft and the skill level and this ability to really risk their neck, in a, which is a very compromising place. Given the limelight, Timmy excelled, but he also notes by the time his climbing had gotten him noticed and set him apart, he probably already hit his apex. Almost as soon as he arrived, he could see that the spotlight was finite. You could have all the desire in the world and you could be trying to outwit death and outwit aging, but ultimately you're going to fail. So, yeah, you can continue to drive at the upper end and not have to be at the crazy upper end, death-defying, but just enough to be noteworthy and newsworthy, and then you can keep speaking about those experiences. But to be honest, dude, who cares? It's a rock. Not only is the rock indifferent, but the majority of the people in the world, they don't have the time to go climb a rock. They don't have the time to go struggle and exercise this sort of futile elective suffering. You know, they're busy on the brass tacks end of life. So I really don't find it to be that invigorating to continually speak about the gnarly ascent that I did. And I never took it serious enough anyway. When I was speaking about it, it was absolutely through the humor. Like my apogee, the, the highest I was, I started to go downhill soon after that. You know, it was like this... 10, 12 years ago, I did a bunch of speed ascents in Yosemite. 
who cares? And then I went and took it out to the greater ranges. Okay, a little more intriguing. And then that was it. And then it really became about personality. And Timmy was all about character. Over-the-top, ridiculous antic. He was free-soloing college dorms for climbing films. He was highlining across desert spires. He had a flair for the dramatic. But there was also a side of Timmy. The rest of the world, looking in, they couldn't see. My brother became paralyzed over 20 years ago. I remember distinctly being 21 years old, living in Yosemite National Park. It was the monument at that time. Living in a cave and, and my family tracking me down and finding out that my brother had this horrific injury. He's paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. It hit me like a stone to the eye. It, 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 it really profoundly influenced my sense of blessing. As they got older, Sean and Timmy started planning adventures together. They climbed El Cap, they went to Alaska. Timmy was able to get Sean. And for that matter, Sean was able to get himself to places no one thought was possible for a paraplegic. Timmy's life as a pro was still going well. Sponsors were happy. But this is where Timmy started to find a deeper calling. It wasn't an overnight thing. With my transformation from taking my energy and delivering it, in this self-absorbed, selfish way where you're only delivering it to the rock and then you're offering as this ascent to bringing people into this world that need to have those same feelings that we all cherish. In 2006, Timmy made a powerful connection and friendship. DJ Skelton was wounded while serving in Iraq. After his recovery, Skelton started climbing again. And when a fellow soldier and friend who had lost both legs asked if he could try climbing, DJ called the one person he thought could help him out with that mission, Timmy. So they made plans. Timmy was going to fly out to D.C. in January of 2007. The time rolled around, and then Timmy's life changed. Somewhere in the deep, sweet silence I wonder if you wanted to And if I'll be I don't know if you've ever had anybody die with you, but it is so incredibly powerful, the cessation of life and the fact that it happens in an instant. Timmy was attending the outdoor retailer trade show in Salt Lake City. A lot of business goes on there, but it's also a chance for people to get out skiing in the morning or take a few pitches of ice before they go to the show. I started Paradox Sports in 2007 because there was an absolute need. And what happened for me was my partner died in an ice climb in Provo Canyon, Chris Honeycutt. I met him that morning at 6 a.m. By 10 a.m., he had died. He fell the entire length of a rope. He was so run out, multiple pitches up, what's called Bridal Bell Falls, and that changed my life indelibly. I said that sharing someone's death is the most intimate act you could ever share. How quickly afterwards did you did you end up starting Paradox? Within a, within a few days, Fitz, it was so fucking hard. Like I, I called DJ Skelton to cancel out of fear that I couldn't bring myself to terms with what had happened and I wouldn't be able to be there to help and to assist. And what he said was, friend, 
we know you. We are you. We are the exploded. We are the survivors. We know your guilt. And I said, sold. I'm coming. And through that meeting, through that weekend, and through that communion with these survivors, even though they were strangers, we still shared that same fraternal order of getting past, going through, overcoming, dealing with. Right? These are big themes in everyone's life, not just someone who's lost their life. The ability to walk, ability to see. I see you on a lonesome road With nothing but the cold winds call your own I was really on the fence with being able to go over to Washington, D.C. because I was so incredibly emotional with Chris's death. I actually wasn't ready to go to Washington, D.C. to work with DJ Skelton and these severely injured military veterans. I wasn't ready to accept the role that Chris Honeycutt's death had and, and continues to have in my life. But it's in that same way that you tie in and approach that pitch, that crux pitch that you may not be ready to go for, but you launch into the unknown anyway. DJ told me, he goes, man, we know your pain. We understand your frustration, and we get who you are. You are one of us. Welcome to the club. And to be honest, I didn't want to be a member of it. It comes with a huge price, man. It comes with a loss of a lot of innocence. And uh, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I sacked up, tied in, and went for the lead. I stuck the crux. And it's still going. You know, it's like the infinite pitch. You know, you're born into it and you die out of it. After that trip, Timmy and DJ founded Paradox Sports, dedicated to providing opportunities, access, and adaptive equipment to help the disabled get out into the outdoors. The community gathered around the fledgling nonprofit. Climber Malcolm Daly, who founded the climbing equipment company Trango and also lost both his legs after an accident on Alaska's Mount Hunter, took the reins of the organization, grew it to serve a growing community of veterans, those struggling with new disabilities, and those who'd grown up with disabilities. Timmy helped with the clinics, acted as a spokesman, but he was still the energetic wanderer, bouncing from one trip to one festival to one MC event to the next one. Paradox was his idea, but it could survive without him. And then things changed. Malcolm decided that after years of service, he would step down in 2011. So they hired a new executive director, and things went poorly. Paradox Sports, after years of the community rallying to support it, began to fall apart. Timmy was on the board, and he was watching this happen. There was talk of allowing Paradox to be swallowed up by other organizations. And then Timmy did something that maybe even surprised Timmy that would come naturally to him as a climber. He made a leap. He knew in a moment that he was more than just a professional climber. Someone needed to step up. Someone needed to be audacious enough to say, I will. And it was classic because the board, they're great. You need your board. But they were concerned. They're like, you're arrogant. You're real prepared. You're never here. And I was like, I am not arrogant. 
I'm not sure what I'm doing, and I'm taking a flight tomorrow to Europe. See you later, you know. The board was a little bit doubtful. I mean, after all, Timmy might not appear to be the most qualified person for this job. I put this plan in a single page, and they go, how are you going to be able to get this stuff done? And I'm like, because I will, because I believe in it, and because I've developed this contact list that's so deep in so many levels from the last 10 years of me just redlining my life that it's time to cull those favors. It's time to create a stronger relationship. It's time to get that funding and that programmatic experience and the individuals who want to help and come in. It's time to twist their arms a little bit and make it happen. I've been able to take what I've developed over these dozen years of working within the industry and without the industry, you know, working as a climber and working as a filmmaker, working as a public speaker, and turn that in uh, to gold. You know, really reap the rewards of that. You know, make hay with it. And, dude, it feels like everything I've done has led me to this point, and perhaps there's no one better equipped than me to make it happen. And it's both invigorating and absolutely terrifying. In just a few months, Timmy got Paradox back on track. He's pulled off a series of fundraisers that have board members beaming. The wild man, the wanderer, the class clown got serious, put climbing on the back burner, and walked into the life of executive director of a not-for-profit, complete with sleepless nights and endless emails. When I talked with Timmy, he was still climbing. He was even getting ready to go do the nose in the day. But he wouldn't be gunning for a speed record anymore. Timmy has evolved into a new challenge. It's the first time in my life that I felt like I may not be able to do it. It may be bigger than my ability. And it's scary. It's humbling. There was a moment this summer, on July 4th, where Timmy's choice to take one step away from the pantheon of professional climbers to enter a new stage in his long relationship with the sport was validated for him. He was out climbing with a group of veterans, working their way to the summit of the Grand Teton. So we're standing on top of the Teton with a group of veterans. One of them is Chad Jukes, and he brought his bugle to the top to play taps. And we have a moment of silence for the people that aren't there, right? To embody those that are no longer with us. And those are the people that are their friends, the soldiers who died in action, the ones who took their own lives, uh, but also family members. And then Chad breaks that moment of silence with one clear note and it goes into taps. And it was surreal, Right? When do you see a one-legged man play tips on the top of an almost 14,000-foot peak? Never see that, right? So it's such a singular, informative experience that says, what did you think was possible? Well, it's even more. You know, what do you define as the edge? We're now further. You know, what did you think could happen in this life has now even surpassed that? So it's this beautiful, informative experience where people are taking a chance and exposing themselves. Their grief, their fear, their discomfort, and that's what climbing is about. Because ultimately, in life, it's not a question of if you experience these, 
when. And if you want to create a true platform that does change people's lives and it's recognized and credible and legitimate, then you have to be a credible, legitimate person. And that means you have to go through the, the channels of the board of directors. You have to go through the channels of hiring. You have to be humble. You have to seek counsel. You have to find true mentorship. And this is all really important. This is all beautiful stuff that I never would have probably had unless my brother became paralyzed. I probably wouldn't have done it. Chris Honeycutt died that day in my arms. I never would have decided to make this leap of faith. And it's the faith that I put into people and the people around me and not into the rock. find out more about Paradox Sports, visit ParadoxSports.org. And also, look for Zach in the tiny house this winter at a ski resort near you. It's exactly what it sounds like. A tiny house on wheels that goes to all the potter stashes across the country. Pretty sweet. Music today by Lau, Weekend, Vitamin C, Crack and Smack, Patrick Park, and Pumice. You can download the tracks for free from our website, DirtbagDiaries.com. So, have you checked out Walker's title card for this episode? If not, you should. It's made from real Legos. So cool. Walker designs 99% of our title cards. Some of them have made it onto t-shirts too. Christmas and the holidays, they're coming. And if you wanted to supplement his dirtbag stipend and also look stylish in the process with some dirtbag Darius gear, you can check it out at our site. On the right-hand side, there's a link to t-shirts. Huh? Want to help them out? Support the art, support the artists. The Darius wouldn't be possible without the support of Patagonia. They're continuing their commitment to the environment with the Common Threads Initiative, working to collectively reduce our environmental footprint. Over 38,000 people have pledged to reduce, repair, reuse, and recycle. Will you take the pledge? Sign it at patagonia.com. I have already. And support comes from Kuat Racks, designers of bike racks with superior function and style. The new Vagabond X cargo basket features locking mounts for two bikes, a cable lock for gear, and a little flash. You can see their full lineup at kuatracks.com. As always, New Belgium Brewing encourages you to follow your folly. I do on a regular basis. Thank you, New Belgium. I'm Fitzgerald, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. <laughs>